G'day and welcome to Occupied. My name is Brock Cook. Now, today we have a special guest. We're going to be talking to Simone Ryan, who's a pediatric OT from Australia, but currently in Japan. You may know her as The Rocket OT, and I'm keen to have a chat with her and find out a bit about what she does. I'd like to welcome Simone Ryan, probably our very, well, not probably, definitely our very first guest on Occupied. Uh, Simone's a, a pediatric occupational therapist from Sydney, but is currently in Japan, I believe. Yes, that is correct. Hello, everybody. So, business or pleasure? What's Japan all, all about? Uh Pleasure mainly. Uh, I was uh, studying Japanese for three months in a place called Fukuoka, which is uh, one of the biggest cities on the West Coast. And currently I am uh, chilling in Okinawa, which is one of the tiny islands uh, off the south of Japan. And it is extremely humid uh, down here. But yeah, doing a lot of swimming and snorkeling and eating of ice cream to keep myself oh, that sounds, occupied. That sounds terrible. <laughs> I know, it's horrible. It's a, I know. It's, it's a meanwhile, hard life that someone has to do it. Meanwhile, most of Australia is whinging about how cold it is. <laughs> it well, is nice. We, it well, I did get Australia. here. Uh, yeah, we did get in Japan uh, when it was uh, yeah in the minus degrees while in the middle of Australian summer. So we sort of had the reverse and missed out on summer. Yep. So this is my summer now. Yeah, yeah no, that's, that's cold. I'll give it that. <laughs> Yeah. So you're originally from. <laughs> so you're originally. Oh, you're not. You're not originally from Sydney, though, are you? No, no. I'm originally from Perth. So I grew up and did all my uni in Perth, um, but I've travelled around working in Australia a bit. So I did a sort of mini gap year where I was uh, figuring out what to do with my life uh, in Brisbane, working at a uh, early intervention um, centre for children with autism. Um, cool. And it was, yeah, it was there that I decided to become an occupational therapist. Uh, so I moved okay. back home because uh, <laughs> no one can afford to do uni. What were you doing at the Early Intervention Centre? Uh, my role was the learning facilitator. So I'd done my undergrad degree, which was in exercise and sports science. And oh, cool. Yeah, essentially I was... It was, it was it was very similar to a childcare environment. It was actually a long daycare outside of the sort of core hours uh, where we had um, a therapist. Uh, so we had occupational therapist, psychologist and a speech pathologist uh, on the floor working with the yep. teachers and the learning facilitators. So we were okay. uh, essentially classroom assistants. Yeah, so we were okay. helping with the running and the pro uh, implementing of the programming that the teachers and the therapists sort of wrote. Was that your like first sort of pediatric uh, experience or had you had an interest in it before then? I actually sort of growing up and early in my undergrad degree had no interest working with children. I didn't really think I'd ever like it. Uh, but in my last year at uh, UWA, so uh, they run a program called uh, Unisport for Kids. Oh, no, sorry, Uni Gym. There's Unisport for Kids is their holiday program, but Unigym uh, is a program run for children who are 5 to 10 who have some sort of uh, motor delay or difficulty. Um, okay. And it was there that I first got introduced to what autism was. Before then, had no clue, was completely oblivious. Uh, and, yeah, worked with 
two young gentlemen who had uh, autism and yeah they just opened my eyes to to the possibilities and yeah how much I really enjoyed working with them so when I finished uni I applied for a bunch of different uh, pediatric placements and Brisbane gave me a job so I packed my bags and moved to Brisbane for a year. Wow and obviously didn't like it because you didn't stay or? <laughs> oh no, I actually loved it. And I, I wanted feet? to do uni there, but uh, just couldn't afford to do my master's and pay rent at the same time. So I moved back home to have, you know, dinners cooked for me and mum there to help me with my washing in my crisis moments. <laughs> so yeah. I think every stu- every uni student wants that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty true, especially especially during your postgrad. There's not much time for uh, for working, that's for sure. No, exactly, exactly. So you did your postgrad to master's in OT or was it master's in something else? Yes. Yeah, master's no, in master's OT? OT, yeah, out of uh, Curtin University back in WA. Okay. And so. then, then where did you end up? <laughs> and then I actually ended up in a mental uh, health uh, uh, placement. My, it was my last placement, and my supervisor quit the week before my placement ended. So I had to finish my placement with no supervisor. But then they offered me a job the week after, which is pretty cool. So I got a job literally the week after I finished uni. Um, and yeah, that was Can't really cool. That. that was working. Yeah, and uh, I think I loved that job. It was um, yeah, extremely you know occupationally based just extremely low paid, which I guess a lot of uh, jobs go hand in hand these days. But yeah, that was great. It was working with um, young adults who'd had an episode of psychosis. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it was in their first two years after having the episode. So doing some uh, early intervention and sort of recovery, getting them back on their feet and re-engaged. Okay, so that that was working in the community? Yeah, yep, yep. Driving around and picking in them up and taking them to the gym or going for beach runs or going out for coffee or yeah taking them to uni or whatever just hanging at their house whatever whatever it is they felt like and whatever their goals were uh we sort of nice. worked with them so yeah it was really That's probably great. the one area of mental health that i haven't had a huge amount of experience in. I've pretty much in, been in, in adult for most of, of my career, but yeah. I do remember when I was working on the Gold Coast, which probably would have been uh, only one or two years out of uni, um, I do remember running, uh, or, or um, there was a couple of us running it, but running a, an early intervention group because I, I was in a community rehab team at the time and we ran an early intervention group for uh early psychosis uh population Mm. but that was sort of before early psychosis teams had sort of come on the scene so there wasn't a lot for them or it was just as the as those teams were sort of coming about i guess yeah there's been a a lot of research i think coming about that those first two years are a really crucial time in order to um you know prevent further episodes of psychosis and you know sort of long-term uh like mental diagnoses so i think it was uh you definitely saw where you were going and 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 where the individuals we were working with were going and and saw their progress on a you know weekly basis which was amazing and just sort of helped them get back into life because it is really hard a lot of them had lost contact with all their their social networks and you know weren't quite sure 
where to go and had gained weight and were feeling really unconfident. So I think it was it was a really valuable time to be able to sort of, you know, work with them and, um, you know, offer them uh, opportunities and sort of uh, that broaden their horizons and, you know, yeah, make them yep. realise that, okay, you know, I can do this. Yeah, and, yeah, for sure. You know, my life isn't going to be, you know, psychosis and run by, you know, mental health issues forever you know it's like I can have good mental health as well so yeah that was yeah it was it was really great I really loved that job yeah that was probably one of the things I really loved about that particular group was it was probably before I was really aware of um I guess occupation-based practice and before I really got into it uh but that particular group was in hindsight I know now like reflecting back on it was really really occupation based like the whole the whole purpose of it was engaging these these young uh, it was mainly guys that particular group may have even actually be ex- yeah. exclusively guys I can't remember but it was about engaging them in the activities that you know 16 to 20 year olds do so it was normal things like it's the gold coast so they go down the beach they kick a footy they go to the pool hall they you know do those normal kinds of activities so i thought it was the best thing ever because i was one year out of uni going this is the greatest job on earth um being able to take a group of guys (laughs) and kick a footy around at the beach but in hindsight i'm like that was probably one of the most occupation-based groups that I was involved in during that period of my career. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that too. Yeah, absolutely. I I think about that often in terms of guiding, you know, like where I want to go back to and be like, well, you know, you can be really occupationally based and see the benefits that that has for individuals and using occupation. I know you talked about in your last um podcast as the means to the ends which you know they talk about over and over at university but sometimes out in the real world it can be a lot harder and yeah that job really uh showed me how you can do that so yeah 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 definitely definitely. think about it a lot even though I wasn't there for very long (laughs) that had an impact oh sorry yep no because then I yep no then I then I sort of uh crossed the country again and and went and moved to Melbourne uh which is uh where I've was for almost four years until I moved up to Sydney at the end of 2016. So, yeah, I've been in a few states in Australia and worked in a few different settings, but, it's yeah, it's been a bit of a adventure. So you were working in paediatrics in Melbourne or stayed in mental health or what did you yeah, do? Yeah, that's when, yeah. I, I, I looked for some jobs in mental health, but I don't think I had really enough experience to be able to land mm-hmm. any so I went back to pediatrics so it was the two places I wanted to work I didn't really want to go back into a hospital I didn't really enjoy the hospital setting yep. uh, so it was yeah definitely peds or mental health were the two and yeah after a bit of a struggle finding a job it's hard in a new grad in a state where you didn't graduate yeah so you do yep. not have any connections yeah finally landed a job in early intervention uh, as a key worker which is another really occupationally based job I found, uh, you know, you're going into people's homes and into childcares and, and working on goals that are really valuable to, you know, the family and, and to the individual child that you're working with. So that's awesome. Yeah, that was, yeah, another period of, yeah, it was really good, I think. And I worked for a really great company as well. So what age, what age group were you working with? Uh, it was pre, like, any, it's children under six. Okay. So it was before they went to school. 
Um, so the youngest I had, I think, would have been, oh, yeah, maybe like 10 months old. Yeah, some of the really young ones tended to go to maybe our physio because they tended to be more physio-based needs. And we tried to sort of match the, it was multidisciplinary, but we tried to, uh, it was interdisciplinary, sorry. So we were each kind of doing a little bit of everything, but we tried to match uh, the needs with the family. So if it was a child who had, you know, more communication difficulties, we tried to give them a speech key worker. Yep. And, you know, if it was more sort of around, if they had some sort of physical need, we'd try and match them with a the physio or it was more social worky. We had social workers, but essentially all of us would work together. And so you'd have one key worker doing the job of about, you know, five or six different disciplines, which was a really great way of doing it because it meant that, you know, that individual family talked to one person rather than having to tell their story to the social worker yeah, and yeah. the early intervention teacher and the OT and the speechy and the psych. It just, yeah, it starts to be, you know, they're just repeating themselves for no real gain. So that was the model and I think it, yeah, it worked really well um, for what it is. But I know that they are struggling with NDIS and making, you know, uh, emphasising the importance of that key worker model um, as opposed to, you know, sort of those private practice uh, OTs or speeches, uh, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. So I, for those of you who don't know or may not be in Australia, uh, NDIS Australia's just moved over oh, yeah, to... Uh, no, no, you're right. Uh, Australia's just moved over yeah, to no, uh, essentially a, a, an insurance scheme for people with disability where it, the idea behind it, I think, is good in that it's meant to give the person more control over where their government funding goes. So they essentially are meant to be able to choose like the kinds of services and who delivers those services. Uh, and it's gradually rolling out. Uh, across Australia, it's a, it's quite a slow rollout. Uh, I know we've got it up here. Uh, Geelong or Barwon Health was one of the first ones down in Victoria. So they're probably the most mm -hmm. advanced of uh, any of the areas that yeah, it's actually rolled out. Yeah, that was about five out. years ago. Yeah, because yeah, I remember going to the Victorian conference a few years ago and that was when it was just rolling out and everyone had all the yeah. questions. And then I came back up here to Townsville and... Uh, it was probably another three years later that the same thing happened and everyone had the same questions. But it's <laughs> it's just because I think because it's a slow rollout and the, the idea behind it too is that each, uh, I guess, district or area in Australia is meant to be able to tailor it to whatever that area needs service-wise. So it's, it's definitely not going to be without issue because it is such a humongous project. So a lot of the blanket... Uh, funding schemes that we've had previously for different things are now all being sort of rolled into one under this national disability insurance scheme. So it's it's a good idea in principle. I don't. I'll I'll be the first to admit I don't know a huge amount about it in terms of like operationally how it works. Only from the few OTs and that that I've talked to that have either been involved like working for NDIA or have had clients that have they've been trying to navigate the system as well. Yeah, I I I'm in the same boat. I've just a lot of more hearsay, I think. Uh I don't really know anyone who's fully across it to be honest. I think there are still a lot of questions and a bit of confusion, but we'll see how it goes. I think depending on who you talk to, they either love it or they hate it. So it's just one of those divisive uh, changes, I think. 
that occur. Yeah, I think it's it's like any change in a, in a health system or in any kind of government change. Really, there's you're never going to please everyone, but I think the the basic concept of it is good. And if they can roll it out and stay true to that basic concept, I think it'll it'll do more good than than harm. Hopefully, that's I mean, obviously that's what you want, but uh, <laughs> it's it's a matter of trying to stay true to that initial. I guess, vision, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So fingers crossed with just as long as I think the people who uh, need it get the services that they need, I think is the important part at the moment. So, yeah, just for anyone who is working to support those families, you know, good luck, keep keep going. Or if, you know, your family is going through the process at the moment, I know it can be a bit tedious from the parents that I've talked to, but I think, you know, slow and steady there's it's sort of it's getting there i think hopefully yeah definitely definitely and i think it's it's fluid enough that when there's issues so i know when there were some issues that were identified in bar when those things were taken into account when they rolled it out in other places so it's it's kind of uh, hopefully like a learning it's kind of a bit of a, a live document yeah, kind of evolving. thing so yeah it's yeah. evolving so hopefully we'll once it's fully yeah. rolled out we'll we'll have quite um i mean the aim is to have a i guess a world class um health service for the disability sector i guess yeah absolutely so you went to you went to sydney after that and i'm assuming stayed in peds yep what was it a similar similar service uh, yeah, I'm back. So uh, in Melbourne, I worked at, uh, after I was in early intervention, I worked for a uh, autism specific school uh, for three years until I moved to Sydney. And then I uh, went back into sort of early intervention and I'm working for a uh, early learning company or childcare company, depending on who you talk to. We're not meant to use childcare anymore. Yep, yep. <laughs> I have noticed that trend. It's changing. <laughs> it is changing. We're, yeah, we're trying to use the correct language uh so yeah i work for an early learning company uh to support the um educators and the parents so have all of your roles been ot specific or have they been some of them been general roles or yeah the one in uh mental health was um surprisingly not ot specific i worked with there were sort of half ot's half social workers but i guess you know when you think about the the, uh, the people we were working with and where they were at, it, it made sense to have. And I think uh, the social workers at the place I was working with were really OTs at heart. They worked with occupation day in, day out. Um, okay. So, yeah, it seemed pretty fluid in that aspect. But apart from that, yeah, I've always had the role as an occupational therapist, so or the title, I should say. Uh, yeah. And have you ever come up against any situation similar to like we were, we were talking earlier about my first podcast where I talked about operation occupation and mm. I guess my journey uh, towards being more occupation based? Have you ever come up against any instances kind of like that? And obviously not exactly the same, but where say occupation may not have been valued within yeah. an OT role? Yeah, absolutely. I think. Um it, yeah, listening to your podcast, I was nodding along quite a lot because it definitely resonated with me around uh, sort of what I'd experienced. And I actually, I write a blog, uh, like rockwoodot.com if anyone wants to check it out. But I 
I wrote, uh, I think it was almost a year ago now, a post about how I was feeling from that real sort of discord around, am I even, you know, doing this right? Am I being a good occupational therapist? And I had a few emails and messages from that where other pediatric OTs were like, I feel exactly the same way. So it felt a bit better to know that I wasn't alone. But definitely, I think it's it's a thing in pediatrics as well. I think uh, I'll, I'll give I'll give some specific examples. I yeah, think yeah. When I really first started noticing it was when I went and worked at the autism school. Okay. And uh, it was a referral base, so it wasn't we weren't sort of we didn't pull kids out of the class and do OT with them or anything like that. It was uh, the teachers would put in a referral, and then we would go and have a chat with them and sort of figure out you know what they wanted to get out of the referral and then we would um, it was sort of a six to eight week process for each referral and then we'd close it and then you know have have new referrals so we sort of had an uh, ever uh, evolving and changing uh, caseload within the school but we sort of noticed sort of towards the end of my first year having conversation with my fellow OTs and we're like all of the referrals we're getting is for a sensory diet. It's like, you know, this child needs a sensory diet. This child needs a sensory diet. And we're just thinking, well, where's the occupation in that? Like, why? Why do they need a sensory diet? And also, is that what they need? Maybe they need something else. You know, maybe it's not just a sensory diet need. Uh, so we came up, we sort of adapted the COPM, so the Canadian Occupational okay. Performance yep measure and we called it the SOPM mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was school-based so we called it the school occupational performance measure clever sounds weird but clever <laughs> yes yes we had to explain it a little bit to to the teachers that we worked with I can imagine <laughs> yes yeah. like, what's an occupation they don't have jobs it's like yes it's okay you know an occupation <laughs> is anything so we sort of sat there and it just helped us make some goals uh set some goals with the teachers and have a bit more of a purpose. So, you know, even though they would put in a referral that says, you know, Johnny needs a sensory diet, would sit down there and say, well, what's going on? What do you want to happen out of this? Like, you know, what part of it maybe it's, oh, it's during maths. He just, you know, he can't sit still during our maths lesson. Okay, let's come in, have a look at that particular time of day and, and figure out what might be going on. And sometimes it was making it more motivating or changing some sort of uh, environmental component um, within the classroom. And it's, it might not have been, oh, he needs a sensory diet per se, uh, but, you know, something else was going on that was contributing to him not being able to sit there and do his maths. Um, and I think yeah, that's, that, that's, that's definitely – oh, sorry. No, you're oh, right. Sorry. Yeah, uh, we, well, we started seeing the changes in terms of referrals and referrals started becoming more occupationally specific rather than, you know, oh, blah, 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 needs a sensory diet. And I think we sort of tracked it each year around how many we got. And in my second year at the school, we got a lot, lot, lot fewer uh, sensory diet requests than we had done previously. That's and they were fantastic. much more. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. And it was is more enjoyable for us as well because, you know, I think people started seeing the breadth of what we could actually offer as occupational therapists. Um, before I Definitely, came along, yeah. OTs, they didn't know that we did toileting. 
And I came in, I was like, where's all my toileting referrals? I love toileting. And they were like, what? <laughs> oh. And I was like, it's an occupation. Of course, I, 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 you know, we should be doing toileting. Um, so, yeah, it started becoming really broad what we were doing. You know, it was really diverse. And I think that makes your job more enjoyable, sort of what you were saying before. No one wants to just be doing the same thing day in, day out and not really seeing any progress or seeing any value in it. So, yeah, I think that's definitely one of the changes we saw. Yeah, I think that referral uh, issue is something that I 100% can relate to. And that was pretty much almost exactly the same thing as I was experiencing in the mental health unit in that doctors kind of had a a rough idea. Well, they didn't have a rough idea at all. They had no idea, but... They had in their head, like, this is what an OT does. And in the mental health unit, it was essentially functional functional assessment. So I would get a referral for a functional assessment. But when I asked why, no one could tell me why. So I'm like, well, don't refer to me for functional assessment. Just refer to me for OT. I'll go and see them. Tell me what the issue is, like, why you think they need OT. Don't tell me yeah. what assessment they need or that kind of thing. Yeah. I'll go and see them and I'll determine whether they need it or whether there's something different that I can offer or whether there's, you know, whether they need me at all kind of thing. And that was that was another yeah. thing where uh, me engaging occupational language with other health professionals helped them kind of get their head around it a little bit, I guess. So yeah. it was yeah. kind of like me telling the doctor what medication someone should be on. Like, that's not like you don't do yeah. that. You say this person's experiencing yeah. what, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And then they use their training to work out what medication someone might need, etc. So, and they, they got their head around yeah. it eventually. And that was, again, like I, I think I mentioned in the yeah. last podcast, like one of my proudest moments was an, uh, a doctor yeah, yeah. Talk, using occupational language and actually understanding it. I know that was so awesome. I was like, oh, my God, when you said that, I, oh, my God, that's the dream, isn't it? <laughs> to, uh, to know that you've uh, not just spouted it enough, that, but, like, that the, the understanding's there, you know, that you've actually taught other people what it means and that they value it enough to start to use it as well, I think. And, yeah, and that's the that's thing. Like, it's so important it's, and so great. It feels amazing having that happen. But then on the other hand, it's like, mm. well, it, I, after a while, once that kind of wore off, I'm like, well, it's kind of crappy that that was required. <laughs> like it's that little tiny thing that actually yeah. made me feel really amazing that day. It just yeah. sort of, I guess, uh, oh. I highlighted to me a much bigger issue, uh, probably a more systemic issue yes. with where OT's placed yeah. in health. Uh, the fact that, Yes. That was the most exciting thing to happen to me in probably the whole time I was at that job. That might be a slight over-exaggeration, but uh, the fact that it's so common, and that was one of the other things, is when I started the community, our community of practice, so our Rome group in Townsville, to try and, I, as part of that process of fixing that, so many OTs just sort of came out of the woodwork going, yep, me too, me too, me too. There were some of the, yep. some groups there, like we ran it at the hospital and there were some groups where we would have 20 people there. Um, and there's probably at the hospital, I don't know, there might have been 60 or 70 OTs. Like that's a big chunk yeah. of OTs. And the obviously, yeah. and the, the fact that we had different OTs, because I ran it once a month, um, and there was different OTs showing up each month. Like obviously some 
couldn't get away for that period of time whenever the group was running. So it really highlighted to me how broad uh, the issue was. And like you said, uh, it, it made me feel in one way good because I wasn't alone. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't just yeah, me experiencing yeah. it. But on the other hand, it was like, holy yeah. cow, like what do we do about this? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I know you, it is. It's a double-edged sword, isn't it? On one hand, you're, you're like, oh, thank God that I'm not the only one who's, you know, feeling, I guess, a bit like a failure. And I did honestly feel like I was failing my uni, uh, my uni training and being an occupational therapist. But on the other hand, it's it's obviously uh, indicative of something much bigger than just ourselves as individuals if there's so many of us feeling the same way. Yeah, think, exactly. Um, you know, things like this podcast are so important to be talking about and to being honest and to be saying, yeah, you know, we've done this, we've struggled with this. Here are things that we've, you know, here are the steps we're making to to try and change it. And then if, you know, the more of us who are making those steps and making those efforts, the easier it's going to be for the occupational therapists who come after us. Because um, that's what I'm thinking as well. You know, there's OTs graduating every single day, it feels like. Um, they're pumping them out of the universities. And I think if they're stepping into an environment where, you know, everyone's just modelling to them, oh, yeah, no, we stopped talking about occupation, then they're going to stop talking about occupation too. So, you know, we want to keep, you know, that that thing that makes our, us unique as therapists and what sets us apart from any other discipline, which is that occupational basis. We want to keep that alive and we want to keep that at the forefront. And, you know, the first however many letters of our title is occupation. So we definitely need to, you know, make sure that 100%. every day what we're doing, you know, if you're not saying the word occupation every day in your job, you know, is, you know, what are you what are you talking about so 100 percent, could not <laughs> agree my rant. More. that's my rant over no no yeah. i like it i so, i i well, i was gonna say um being honest is something i've definitely not really had an issue with usually to my detriment i tend to step on toes sometimes yeah. but that's okay because <laughs> i think when it comes to this kind of thing the conversation needs to happen uh it needs to yeah. And, I, and I've had conversations like this for the last, I don't know, five or six years. And I've also had conversations with the people going, well, you know, yes, we had that conversation five or six years ago. Like, do we still need to have it? And I'm like, well, yes, we do. Yeah. Uh, I think we're probably yeah. going to always have to have it because we're always, on terms of other professions understanding what we do, we're quite obscure. We use a, a language that is, yes, it's it's assigned different meaning by other people. So the word occupation means something different to Joe Blow. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to keep defining it. Yeah. And it's purely because we aren't very good at, or we haven't been very good at actually explaining what we do. And I think a lot of it is because there's quite a few OTs that don't actually understand what we do. But that's my <laughs> yeah, little Yeah, and I think yeah, <laughs> my... My perspective is that so often, I mean, I think it's really rare that you find an OT who doesn't work at least in some capacity with another discipline. You know, yep. even if you're a private practice OT, you will still be calling up, you know, the speeches or the psychs or the physios to be working hopefully you know, jointly on some sort of goals or you'll be involved in some sort of case meeting. You know, often 
we're working in environments that are multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary. And so, you know, we do have to define our role. And if we just kind of let other people define it for us or what they think our role is within that setting, then we are going to lose, you know, our, our focus of occupation because they don't have necessarily have that focus. You know, we've been trained to think a certain way and to approach situations with a certain mindset and to look at it from an occupational point of view. And so it's up to us to then be that voice of reason, for want of a better word, around how we're going to approach a certain situation. Because the physios are going to approach it from their way. The doctors are going to approach it from their way. You know, the speeches are going to approach it from their way. And so instead of just sort of smiling and nodding and just, you know, doing what people think we should be doing, we need to be also asserting ourselves and saying, well, this is what an occupational therapist is and this is what we do and this is also what we don't do as well Um, because we often get sort of, I think you said this in your last podcast actually, we get sort of thrown a bunch of different things that don't really technically come under our role Um, and I think it's really important to know what your role is so that you can advocate for it and so that then people start to know, hey, oh, the OT can actually do this, you know. Like, you know, how many years was that, the autism school that I was at running with no one having any knowledge around toileting where toileting is a really big issue with autism because you know we had children who either weren't toilet trained up until you know 13 14 or that they were having toileting issues around their you know bowel motions that sort of thing and that is such a huge chunk you know um another OT who joined the same time I did, she created this whole dressing program and teaching children how to dress themselves. And I just think, wow, you know, this is, that's occupation. You know, that's so important. This is what these children need rather than endless sensory diets, you know, which just become, you know, the same thing over and over again and that they're only targeting one tiny little component and it's bottom up and we want to be top down. So, I think hundred percent occupations, and it sounds like there's sort of very similar trends, I guess, between mental health and and what you've experienced in peds. Because I know in mental health, one of my pet peeves was for quite a while there, a lot of the mental health OTs that I knew, they they latched on to interventions as opposed to occupation. So the intervention yeah. then became the yes. main focus as opposed to being just a tool, um, even though they would still call yes. it a tool and talk about, you know, got to do this training, so I've got another tool in my toolkit, but they're not using it as a tool. It becomes yeah. the main focus. Like, I've done AMPS training, so AMPS is what I do. I've done DBT, yes. so I've, yeah. I've known OTs that will call themselves DBT therapists because they've done DBT. I'm like, yeah. well, it's just a tool. Mm, absolutely. And I was thinking about this earlier today, actually, because – um, you know, and, and where I sort of draw the line. And I think in PEDS, we have a therapist who might specialise in a particular occupation. So you have feeding therapists. So you have OTs who specialise in children with feeding difficulties. And you have uh, OTs who might specialise in more fine motor things. So handwriting and, you know, scissors and tying your shoelaces and they or um, other OTs might specialise in toileting, for, for example. But they sort of identify with the occupations that they specialise with rather than the therapy that they specialise with. And I think that's the difference. Yeah, what you were saying about 
you know, do you define yourself by what intervention you use or do you define yourself by which occupations you're looking at? And, you know, I understand, you know, feeding is such a complex issue that, you know, you might not, if you know all there is to know about feeding, there might not be enough time or space left in your brain to know everything there is to know about toileting. And so that makes sense that you might, you know, differentiate yourself in that way. But then when your parents or your, your, your families or your children are going there, they know that they're going there for that occupation. It's like, this is my feeding OT, you know, and you're not saying, oh, I'm doing all of your occupational therapy. It's like, well, I'm looking at this specific area. And I think, yeah, when we start to, uh, uh, what's the word, label ourselves by the interventions we use, we're limiting our scope of what we're actually looking at from an occupational point of view. Um, and I definitely, yeah, have seen that a lot and I've had conversations with other paediatric occupation, occupational therapists as well about it and how it is becoming really prevalent in peds to, you know, to, to label yourself as, you know, the, the intervention in certain, rather than yeah. an occupation. And I, I guess Absolutely. that's one of the uh, a habit that I'm currently trying to get myself into because it's something I've been thinking about for quite a while is I'm trying very hard and it's a little bit easier now that I'm not working clinically, but I've been trying really hard not to call myself a mental health OT. If anything, I'm an OT mm. who works in mental health. And that was yeah. stemmed yeah. from a lot of our occupation-based groups, so our Rome groups, um, where once we got... there, So there was very few instances pds or anything up this way where you would get mental health ot's and physical ot's the i've already stuffed it up i've said it already in the same room but once we started our uh i guess uh occupational practice change groups that was one of the few times where everyone would be together and it was really obvious once we started having discussions that yes we are still all the same we're just working in different areas So that's something, Absolutely. it's a habit that I'm I'm obviously not doing real well at because I've already stuffed it up a couple of times today, but it's it's something that I'm trying to be a bit more conscious of yeah. and that's something I'm trying to instill in now that I'm working in academia, it's instill in the students that I teach is that doesn't matter where you end up, you're, you're an OT. If you're an OT who yeah. works in pediatrics or you're an OT who works in mental health, I could be an OT who works in mental health early intervention. I could be an OT who works in mental health acute care. But you're an OT first, I guess. Trying to, I believe yeah. that if you if you identify with that as opposed to identifying with the practice area or the occupation, then you've got a better, I don't know, I think you would find it easier to maintain your occupational focus, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And yeah, I think I think you know once you start you know becoming super highly specialized within a particular area, are you still an occupational therapist? Are you still looking at it from that broader occupational point of view? It's like. You know, because I think that's where it starts to be like, well, you're looking at one very, very specific thing. And so by saying, oh, that's occupational therapy, it's like you're narrowing the field of, of, you know, how we're supposed to approach things. And, you know, an occupational therapist should look at all the occupations. And, you know, I don't know, that's my two cents anyway, is that, you know, and even though even if you maybe don't have, you know, the skills or knowledge for a particular occupation, then you can, you know, refer on to those people who do 
but you need to be looking at that broader picture and you need to be looking at everything. You can't just be narrowing your focus down to one thing because then you're got you're going to miss you know people aren't just one individual component you know people are complex and and how you know they respond is going to be you know diff, uh, depending on their environment and so we need to be able to you know look at things from that occupational point of view so yeah I, I agree I, I like that as a challenge to always refer to yourself as an occupational therapist first and then your specialty second yeah, absolutely. Because it's just, that way people will ask, well, what's occupational therapy? And then you constantly have to define it as well. And, and that's and, that's the know, other thing I find. That, yes. That's the other thing I find is people will, when they're asked that question, and I always say to my students, like, this is the question that strikes fear into the heart of every OT. Uh, <laughs> but people, and one of my pet peeves is people that try and define OT by giving practice examples. I'm like, but what about, and usually only gives me the, uh, annoys me because uh, I'm like, what, it doesn't, most practice examples don't include anything from mental health. So you're like, oh yeah, you know, I assess people post-surgery and I give them equipment and make sure they're safe to go home. I'm like, yeah, but that's completely nothing to do with, like, I can't use that same definition in mental health and have people go, well, you're an OT and you're an OT. So we need to find that common ground and start educating people about what we do. The biggest excuse I hear is that, oh, it's too hard. People don't understand it. I'm like, people don't understand it because we're not very good at explaining it. Yeah, absolutely. I First and foremost, like learn what occupation is and define it and change people's perception of it and say, yeah, acknowledge the fact that, you know, most people think occupation is a job, you know, or maybe, you know, your primary thing that you do you might be a student for example you know when you go to the doctor's surgery it says occupation and you have to write down what it is Hmm, what Um, you identify start by changing that and challenge like other people's opinion of it it's like in the context of a doctor's surgery yeah this is what occupation means but in the context of occupational therapy occupation is really broad and it's pretty much anything you do that occupies your time like that's Mm. not a hard definition I I don't understand why people struggle with it so much you know list off a bunch of different occupations that people do you know talk to people well what do you do during your day tell me everything you do during your day and I'll tell you that there's an OT who can help you with that yeah exactly Exactly. so I've had I had a I remember uh, Matthew, Dr. Matthew Moliner, who runs Griffith University now, the OT school at Griffith, one of his things was about an elevator speech. So he was like, you should always have, I can't remember what whether it was 30 or 40 seconds or something, he reckons that essentially yeah. if someone says, what's an OT in an elevator, you should be able to explain it by the time you get to your floor and the door opens. So you should have yeah. something in the back right. of your head, semi-pre-prepared, which is yeah. one, it's it's really concise and you don't end up rambling for, you know, ever like I tend to do. Yeah. And it makes it really clear in your head, like 30 seconds, if you've mm-hmm. got a definition of what an OT is and I should be able to use that same definition. So if I recited that same definition, it would fit what I do as well. So not a practice yeah. example an actual definition of OT, actually explaining OT. And like you said, you may have to, especially initially, you may have to explain what occupation is. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't know why people get it in their head that, oh, we can't do that because they just don't understand. I'm like, well, why can't we do that? What's wrong with that? I'm like, yes, it's annoying, 
that we we've... all learned what it means. Like exactly. Yeah, we got taught what occupation is. Like when I entered, you know, OT school, I didn't know what the I didn't know how to define occupation besides it's a job, and yeah. we got taught it. So you know, it's our job to then go on and teach others what it means. And that's that's one of the the things, and I'll probably do a completely separate podcast on this because I could be on this rant forever. <laughs> is that people form relationships with words? That's how knowledge is defined. It's yes, it's only occupation to them as you know a job because that's the relationship they formed with that word. If we can change the relationship they have with the word, which is just sounds that we make with our mouth. It's nothing really concrete. It can change. We only got to look at, you know, the words that kids use nowadays. Half of them meant something else to me when I was young. Like words can change and it's changed through exposure. So if we, as a profession, not just, you know, a handful of us every now and then, if we as a profession decide that we want to change the public perception of a word we can do that we have that power social constructionism allows it yes absolutely make it a meme you know those things spread like wildfire so i think yeah there's definitely the capacity for us to be able to do that um i think us saying oh no it's too hard or we can't or you know just assuming that no one else is going to understand it in a way it's almost elitism because it's like well we understand what it means but oh no one else can ever understand it it's just too complex for their poor brains to ever muster it's like no it's not you learned it everyone can learn what occupation means and exactly i've met children who've been in therapy for God knows how long, who probably still don't understand what their OT does. You know, they know that their speech helps them talk, but they don't really know what their occupational therapist does. And I think, wow, that's, you know, and all the parents don't know either. They're like, oh, oh, they kind of do. Oh, I don't really know. And I'm like, that's well, they, that just they bring all the cool toys in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, they put me on a swing for a while. It's like, oh, my goodness, that's so worrying that that's your definition of an occupational therapist. And that's it. So that's it. People, people yeah, form their to change it. Yeah, people form their definition yeah. by their experience. So if their experience is that, yeah. oh, the OT came in and put my kid on a swing, then that's what they're going to think an OT does. So when I say, oh, no, I work <laughs> exactly. in mental health, they go, oh, you put people on a swing in mental health too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they just think. That's the association that they've created with that job, you know. And then we, you also have to question, well, how much do they value that as well? Where's the, you know, if they're not understanding the purposes of what you're doing or why you're doing it, then they're not necessarily going to value it. And then they just go and say, oh, I don't know. I just, you know, because the pediatrician told me that my kid needs OT, so I take them once a week to see the OT. I just think, oh, no, that's that's that really worries me because, uh, you know, OT shouldn't just happen once a week for an hour. It, you know, it's about changing, putting changes within, you know, an individual's life to help them every single day to do what it is that they want to or they need to do every single day. And it's not just, you know, once a week for an hour. Oh, well, that's done. You know, see you again next week. Um, and it's, so it's, it's up to us as a therapist to have those conversations. And you'll you'll always get a better result if they understand why. So yeah. yeah, and you work with what's important for them. 
Yeah, you'll have your therapy session and then if they understand, well, okay, so this is why I'm doing this or this is why the OT is talking to me about this, you're going to have a better, you're going to have more buy-in, essentially. Yes, yeah. I know I think that's another really common complaint with OTs is that, you know, oh, they just don't do what I ask them to do. And it's like, well, have you talk to them about why you're asking them to do it is this at all meaningful for this person because if they're not doing it then it's not meaningful for them and it's up to you to change what you're doing to make it meaningful it's not up to them you know they they value and they um you know believe whatever they believe is meaningful and purposeful to them they're not going to just suddenly you know change their mind on that if you want to you know achieve certain goals from your you know ot perspective you need to have a conversation with them and and figure out well what's important to this individual you know how can i make what i want to do relevant to this person you know i often talk about gold standard i'm like well there's the gold standard and then there's what's practical and what's meaningful and what's actually going to happen and very rarely are those two things the same and so you need to be okay with not just going wanting the gold standard every single time and expecting it because nothing's going to happen you know it's about doing what's going to be what is that person actually going to do and what is that person actually going to you know commit to and where is the improvements actually going to come from definitely definitely i mean resource allocation whether it's actual you know in peds i assume it'll be like toys and uh, consumables or whether it's actual like man hours resource allocation needs to be taken into account sometimes there's a lot of things and that's one of my my peeves with some of the stuff in mental health especially around some of the sensory stuff that i've seen rolled out in mental health is that they're using toy not toys but using sensory modalities that are Equipment. so expensive yeah. They're, they're just yeah. not accessible to the average person. And a lot of the research in mental health is around seclusion and restraint. So it's, allow, uh, it's around uh, setting people up so they're able to self-modulate in the end. You don't want to be setting up a reliance on a, a service resource. You want to be setting it up so that they can learn how it works, learn what it means to them and how it works for them. And use it at home, use it in the park, use it wherever it is, whether it's, you know, it could be a meditation technique. It doesn't have to be a physical uh, sensory tool, but that seems to be the, I guess that's what's, you know, that's what's sexy when it comes to interventions and that's what everyone wants to do. So I, that's yeah. one, that's another pet peeve. Of my, I have a lot of pet peeves. If you haven't worked that out, yeah. I'm, I'm quite <laughs> peevy. No, I don't okay. know. I think <laughs> every Every paediatric OT is probably nodding along right now because we have the exact same thing in peds. And, you know, I, I met talking earlier about how looking at one, you know, one component, you know, you're not looking at the whole person. And, you know, part of looking at the person is looking at their environment and what they're doing, you know, and where they are. And what's the point of, you know, recommending you know, a swing if, well, they can't put that in their house, you know, Mm. maybe they're, you know, they're in an apartment that they rent. Oh, well, I don't think, you know, they're not going to have room for, I don't know, a A mini trampoline and crash pads or, you know, bolster swings or whatever else you want to sort of recommend. It's like, well, you need to figure out what's going to actually work within that person's environment. And you also have to look beyond just sensory as well and I think yeah that's definitely one of my pet peeves and (laughs) I think yeah it's just 
yeah, it just baffles my mind that, you know, I think, you know, self-regulation, like sort of what you're talking about, is just so, you know, it's become synonymous with sensory. It's like, but we understand that there's so much more to self-regulation than just sensory needs. And, you yeah, know, yeah. by only looking at the sensory, we're never going to help an individual to regulate because we're missing all the other pieces of that puzzle. And we're, you know, we're only looking at one piece of it. And so, you know, that person's going to feel like a failure. We're going to feel like failures. It's never going to, you know, we're, we're never going to feel like, oh, yes, we've, you know, helps this person achieve regulation and achieve. And why are they regulating? To to participate in an occupation. You know, it's not just, oh, we're all walking around super regulated. You know, regulation depends on what you're doing. You know, regulation for sitting there watching your favourite footy team play is so different from sitting in class and listening to your teacher or, you know, playing outside with your friends or going to bed at night, you know, what you need, the regulation demands you need for those different occupations are different. So anyway, there's my pet peeve. Regulation's kind of your wheelhouse now, isn't it? It is. I've, I, yeah, sort of, I think sort of touching earlier around the, working at uh, the autism school really you know regulation is just so big I think especially in autism but especially you know in children alone uh, you know going into like an early learning environment so often I hear oh blah 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 has trouble with their like social emotional or oh they just they can't regulate themselves and it definitely became uh, a point of interest I think for me and you know, after talking to other OTs around, I guess, the differing points of view around self-regulation and I think, you know, what I was saying earlier around, it just became synonymous with sensory. But, you know, me as my sports science background is coming in saying, well, what about motor planning and, you know, doing more research, saying, well, what about the co-regulation? What about the motivation? You know, what about their basic needs? Like, oh, here's a child who doesn't eat very well, is severely constipated, oh, but, you know, we'll just say it's sensory. It's like, well, I kind of think maybe the constipation is having a effect on that child's behaviour and maybe we need to look at it from that point of view rather than just looking at it from, oh, this child, you know, needs sensory needs and a sensory diet. Um, so from that I sort of, uh, I'm a visual person myself. I love visuals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, made a, same. A visual um <laughs> I made a visual, like, yeah, similar to, I guess, what you did with the Operation Occupation is I uh, made a visual that I've called the Regulation Rocket and it, it encompasses, you know, everything that we talk about as OTs, the occupation, you know, the environment and then looking at that, the, those personal um, components of what affects uh, self-regulation. And, you know, sensory is a component in it and that's that's how I want it to, you know, be talked about is it's a component it's not well, how it be, be all end all and absolutely you know I'm not disregarding it I'm not saying that you know oh we should just forget about it and never ever talk about it it's definitely important and for different individuals it's going to hold a different amount of weight so for some you know for some individuals it's going to be really really important to address whereas for others you know, we might need to address other things as well and other things first. You know, we might need to address their home life and what they've experienced, you know, or are they, uh, do they have their basic needs met? 
you know, what's going on biologically for them? You know, do they have some sort of, um, are they in pain? You know, that's going to have a huge impact on their regulation. So, yeah, if, if anyone wants to read about it more and have a look at it, they're more than welcome to, um, to go to my website and I can send it through to you as well if you want to put it up with the, the link to the podcast. Yeah, yeah, send it through. I'll, um, I'll, yeah, I'll put it up. Yeah, that's sort of my the... baby at the moment. So you sent it to me, uh, sent me the link to your website pretty much, well, wasn't wasn't long after I'd even posted the last podcast going, have a look at this. <laughs> and as soon as I opened it up, yeah, I was yeah. like, this is brilliant. I I know absolutely nothing about peds and I'm the very first to admit that. But as soon as I looked at it, I'm like, that is 110% OT. It just looked like OT. It's an OT model with a rocket ship in the middle of it. Yeah. What What isn't there to like about it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> That's what I tried. <laughs> no, so do you see it being used more as an overall thing or are you looking at it, oh, I'm assuming seeing it's called the regulation rocket, you're looking at it specifically for the purpose of regulation? Yeah, the more I sort of think about it, the more I think it's it's essentially any occupation. You, It definitely does have that like regulation and that's where I came from and that's where, you know, um, the components of the rocket itself are are based on the research around regulation and, you know, what I was reading. And a lot of – so where it gets really confusing looking at the research is that different um, people will focus on a singular component. So there's a lot of research around the effects of motivation on uh, your regulation or the effects of – you know, trauma uh, or the effects of sensory or, you know, the uh, executive functioning. And, but there's not that many things where that's sort of, it's all tied together. And so people can look at it all. And so then people start looking at it as those small individual components. And I wanted something that was a lot more holistic. And yep. if you look at it, I guess it's pretty much just like a PEO model, but regulation based and you know with um with a rocket rather than three intersecting circles um but essentially the components are the same it's the occupation the the person factors and then it's the environment um so i think it can definitely be used for you know any occupation because you know for any occupation you do need to look at those person factors um but it is definitely uh, for me a, a way to talk about and broaden people's approach to regulation. I think it's it does become really narrow. And what really saddens me is how many people talk about regulation as if it's 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 on the individual and often you know working peds that's a child and saying yeah, yeah. Oh, they can't regulate. And I just think that you know we no one operates in a vacuum. The way that people respond to you know, each other, our co-regulators, they're going to have a huge impact. And there's actually, there's there's a lot of re- um, research on this actually coming from different perspectives, not just OT from psych, you know, loves talking about uh, co-regulation as well, especially from a young sort of age and the way that, because it, it relates to, to trauma and to the uh, like neglect and, and those things that we know have a a long-term impact on a person's regulation and so you know the way that our you know those um our caregivers and the people that we trust around us respond has a huge impact on our regulation and so for me it was like well 
we need to stop saying this kid can't regulate and they need help and sort of pointing the finger at the kid and then thinking, okay, give me an intervention, give me some sort of solution to, you know, for want of a better word, fix this child. It's like, well, no, we need to recognise what are we asking them to do? What are we expecting them to do? What do they want to do? What's their occupation? And then how is, how is what, they're, what they've got, what, how does their personal factors in this environment that they're currently in, how are they all working together to achieve that occupation? And if there's some sort of breakdown along the way, then that's what we need to sort of look at, not just saying, oh, this kid can't regulate themselves. So, yeah, the way I see it, ideally, is that it is a way that people approach, you know, talking about, looking at, thinking about regulation. And then from that, they can choose those interventions. It's like, okay, maybe they need some sort of, um, you know, a program to work on their uh, attention or a program to work on their um you know, flexible thinking or their yep. social skills or looking at, you know, their emotional understanding. Maybe we need to really target that. But also at the same time, recognising let's set up the environment that we've currently got and let's adjust the occupation so that, you know, they can at least be doing something and then we'll work them towards those bigger occupations or those, those more challenging occupations by working on their person. Yeah, so I guess that's that's how I see it as is like an overarching sort of approach to regulation that then, yeah. you know, hopefully other people who um, are using, you know, particular interventions and finding really useful can fit into it. But by recognising that, hey, there's other, there's other things that we need to consider as well. It's not just these like small components. We need to look at the bigger picture. Definitely, definitely. And I, I think one thing that really got me when I first saw it, obviously, like I said, I don't have a, a strong background or any background really in PEDS, but just taking the model on face value, what I, and I'm going to try and tie back to what we were talking about before, I'm a big advocate for the use of metaphor. Like I'm a, I am absolutely love the Kawa model, um, that kind of thing. And I like it because it takes what is quite a complex concept of how different uh, entities in our lives can interact and how they work together and how we can adjust and change different things to have influence on other things in our lives. So I really like the concept of metaphor to try and explain something that's really quite complex in a way that people understand. And the fir- that was the, the literally the first thing that grabbed me about your model was well, sorry, I told a lie. It's the second thing. The first thing was, holy crap, that's OT. The The second thing was that it's just such a beautiful graphic that I have absolutely no doubt if you were using that with a kid, they would really be able to understand what OTs do by the end of what you were, whatever you were working with them on. And you could say, like, this is what OTs do. We look at all these little things, you know, we look at the the moon or wherever you're taking off from and the fins on your rocket, the different parts of the rocket, the different uh, aspects that are in space. And we use that to help you, you know, whatever you're doing, you're trying to fly to the moon or fly to Mars or whatever you're trying to do. But using that metaphor. Which planet do you want to go to? Exactly, exactly. And different planets might be different parts of their lives. Like you can extend the metaphor as as far as your creativity allows, I assume. But it it was something that I was like, that is just brilliant. Because now 
this kid, whoever it is, say that you're working with, is going to have an understanding, and it might not be using the technical jargon that we do, which is exactly what we want, by the way, but they're going to understand what OTs do, what we look at, and how all of those aspects interrelate. And I think that is something just so beautifully powerful about that. Oh, thank you. And I have to say, like, the Kawa model was definitely an inspiration. I had to deliberately not make it a river so that it wasn't a complete rip off <laughs> of the model but I love I love the Kawa model so much and I think it's hands down one of my favorite models and the sad thing about working in pizzas you don't use it quite as much as you do when you're in mental health but I did I wanted something that particularly like you know uh, maybe older children or children who um you know have the the language and the the cognition skills to be able to you know sit down and have that conversation is I want them to be able to own it I want them to be able to one day draw their own rocket and draw whatever their moon looks like and draw the planets that they want to go to because I think that's that's where the value is it's like this is about them and it's about you know looking at you know where they want to go and what or or, you know talking about hey you don't want to go to this planet but it's actually what you're expected to do and what you're expected to do you know that's a part of life is we have to do things that we don't particularly want to do but we need to do them or that people (laughs) expect us to do them and especially you know working with children with autism who might not necessarily understand different social norms and different social expectations being able to talk to them about well you know this is actually really important that this is something that you know everyone expects that people can go to this planet and you know like let's let's figure out how we can get you there because I know you're finding it really hard to get there and to understand you know what people are wanting you to understand or to do that this is you know things like wearing clothes in public you know it is a social expectation and so they you know we need to for them to understand that you know or you know not not taking things just because you want them that's a really important social expectation that you have to pay for things and that sometimes those things are unavailable because someone else owns them you know these are really important lessons that it's you know it's not that we want to do them but but that's expected um so yeah that was definitely yeah something I wanted to sort of highlight as well within it and yeah so thank you that's really lovely feedback on it and I hope other people find it valuable as well and yeah and I'd encourage anyone if you're having a listen jump onto I'll I'll put the link up on my website or you can jump straight onto Simone's website which is rocketot.com is that right? Yes, yes, Rocket OT. There's actually another blog, sorry, there's another blog called Pocket OT, which I didn't realise until I'd been writing my blog for a few months. So, yeah, yeah maybe give Pocket OT a look as well, but I am Rocket OT with an R. So yeah, I do. I, I, have, <laughs> I, have spoken, I have spoken to Pocket OT before as well a long time ago, <laughs> uh, and I can tell you they are very different. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, uh, awesome. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Simone, for right. you know coming in and having a chat with us. It's, it's been really enlightening, and it's awesome to see the, I guess, the links that we've made between what's sort of happening in mental health and some of the the pediatric stuff. Uh, and occupation based, keep pushing that occupation based train through pediatrics. 
That's what we we really want to yeah. aim for. That's where we want to be. I I I'm a firm believer yep. that that's what's going to get us the best results for for our clients that we work with, whether they're mental health, physical rehab, pediatric, no matter where it is. So thank you very much for coming and have a chat. And we might have to get you back on, uh, and we'll have another another discussion another time. <laughs> No worries. We covered a lot of topics today, but I think uh, hopefully the the main messages of yeah that that need to be occupationally based and to keep to keep going even though you know there's hurdles definitely out there in the workplace and you know you might feel like you're the only one really advocating for it at times, but yep, definitely keep going with it because there's people like us who. Uh, have felt the exact same way and, you know, sometimes still do feel the exact same way Um, and it's just really important to start having those conversations and, yeah, identifying as an occupational therapist first. I think that's a really good takeaway from today's podcast. 100%, 100%. But, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure is mine, absolutely, anytime. Thank you.